State of Digital Publishing is a publication and community for digital publishing and media professionals in new media and technology. In this second season episode, we speak with Kylie Merritt, founder and managing director at Ausbiz, about the state of live streaming. Ausbiz is being labeled the first continuous live streaming service dedicated to business and finance information in Australia. Let's begin. Hi, Kylie. How are you? I'm well. How are you? I'm good, thanks. Thanks for joining us today. You're very welcome. Yeah, I'm, I'm very on um, on this podcast for this episode just because in Australia there's a, um, not much uh, live streaming in business and finance, and you guys are doing something very interesting, and it's coming out soon. Osby's TV, obviously. But before we jump into that and some of the live streaming trends in here and um, you know in Asia Pacific, I'd just like to pass it to you just to provide a bit of background about yourself and how you came to launching Osby's TV. Sure. Okay. Well, my background is in mostly in business and finance journalism. So I've been in this space uh, for 20 years and pretty much all of that has been in business and finance TV. I I did have a couple of years prior to that as a general news reporter, but I I sort of fell into my finance round uh, in the year 2000 and haven't looked back. I've done a lot of other bits and pieces within media, uh, mostly always within television you know, digital streaming, video, commercial. I've spent quite a bit of time on the commercial side, but really I guess you could say my my career passion is is business and finance news. So I uh, was one of the team that launched Sky News Business in 2007. And then I was also part of the team that launched um, Your Money, which was the joint venture between News Corp and Nine which unfortunately didn't quite work out the way everyone had hoped. And that's sort of what led me to here. So when that, when the decision was taken to close that down, uh, not long after that, I suppose I, you know, we'd had a lot of questions and queries from people within the Australian financial services community, largely who, you know, Sky Business and, and Your Money was sort of very much a part of their life. And you know, it was really after a, a lot of people from that space started asking us, you know, what are we going to do without a dedicated Australian business channel? And so we looked at a couple of options and it became pretty clear pretty quickly that commercially a, a streaming channel could work and that there was definitely a need for it and a gap in the market. So there's a few people on the team who've I've worked with over the years um, at, at Sky and at Your Money and a few of those will be on Ausbiz. So a lot of us have, have done this before and yeah, we're streaming um, or steaming. I'm not sure what the term is, but we're <laughs> hurtling towards launch. How much of a factor was your past experience in actually launching this? Uh, do you find that that's a key role for an entrepreneur to have that background experience in order to be able to launch a TV network or, you know, a streaming service like this? Yeah, look, I I mean, I, I couldn't have just walked in off the street and done this. Um, I uh, was part of the team that launched um, the Australia Channel, which is Sky News's international streaming service. So that was, I think, 2013 or 14. Yeah. Um, so I certainly sort of learned a lot about the, the tech side and the platforms during that. Running a continuous live stream will launch with eight hours a day and grow from there. I think at one point at Sky, we were doing 16 hours. It's, a, it's quite a specific skill set to be able to build that out and to know how to make that run. So, you know, that combined with the commercial I've done, I wouldn't say this is an easy path, but 
uh, yeah, there's definitely just no way I, I could have done it with, without all the, the knowledge and the, the background that I have in this space. You mentioned as well that obviously there's a market fit, there's a market gap given the current landscape and what happened with your money. So in terms of making it commercially viable, um, what are some of the factors around that, um, particularly for any, anyone else that wants to make a streaming service? How do you make it commercially viable? Look, there's a couple of things. Firstly, running a, a, a traditional TV network um, on, a, on a broadcast network on Spectrum or on, uh, on Foxtel, mm-hmm. um, there, there are a lot of costs that are associated with that and a lot of regulation that are associated with that, which, you know, it just changes your cost and revenue model. So you do need to make a lot more revenue just to get a business like that to wash its face. There's a lot of costs that you know, as a viewer, you wouldn't be able to tell the difference really between a, a streaming service and a TV service. There's a whole bunch of stuff that goes on in the background um, that you need to pay for that, you know, just don't come into the equation um, with streaming. I think, you know, really anyone could set up a streaming channel on YouTube. You could, you know, for probably $1,000, you could buy a couple of streaming cameras from JB Hi-Fi and sit, of, sit there and, and chat about it for a while. That's not what we're doing. We are creating a very professional high quality service so you know there we've had to to go out to the market and raise capital we have investors to be able to get this off the ground because it is something that you know we want the financial services community to feel very comfortable having on in their offices and on you know dealing room floors and that's just not going to happen um, unless the quality is super high end we've made big investments in graphics and data Uh, Because obviously as a finance channel, that's kind of your bread and butter. So, you know, I I wouldn't say that we're just walking away from all of the the, the quality requirements of, you know, of a television network. But yeah, there are a lot of costs that we don't to have to fork out for. The other thing is we've been incredibly lucky to be able to launch something from scratch is that you can go out and you can use the very latest technology. So we've gone from a situation in broadcast where you have very, very expensive kind of legacy systems. Mm -hmm. And, you know, a lot of the broadcasters will move on to these newer, say, cloud-based systems over time. But to do a rollout of those in a, you know, a very well-established, very large newsroom takes a lot of time. You know, you can't just unplug one system and plug something else in because everything kind of talks to one another we're very lucky in that you know we just had a blank sheet of paper so we went around we talked to all the vendors we already knew we talked to some new ones and we're building a service and a a newsroom that's based on a lot of these new technologies where there are very little kind of upfront capex you know it's a lot of kind of monthly subscription as a service fees which does take out a lot of that cost and it also enables a lot more automation and so you don't need as many people, um, physical people pressing buttons and doing things as, as you would in a traditional kind of a, a TV newsroom. It can all be done sort of at the press of a button by one person. So there's a lot of cost that's come out there as well. And, you know, I guess it just, it just makes it easier to get the stuff produced. And was there any thought of making that as an iterative process? So like, um, I know you said that you identified the need and the gap, but, you know, Putting it on YouTube, for example, like sound bites, like for example, CNBC does with their clips around certain financial monetary issues, and then trying to get some appetite, and then trying to build it out that way to help with the investment and just those areas. Or is it? Just, do you think that your background and the fact that you've done it before has helped? 
uh, validate that? Well, I think the difference between there is if you think about the sort of content, I mean, we would still put, you know, short form some of our content across various social channels, mm -hmm. um, including potentially YouTube. But you still, to be able to do that, you still have to have all of the capacity to make that content. So you still need a studio, you know, you still need hosts and producers and graphics and all of that sort of thing. Yeah. So the difference between investing in all of that and just putting up some short form clips and investing in all of that and running it for eight hours a day is not that much different because you still need that content to put out. It's actually way more efficient to produce that content as a, a live continuous rolling feed and then just edit the, the key parts of that to publish across various platforms. So yeah, your answer to that is it was always sort of going to be all or nothing. We are only doing eight hours a day. So we're doing 8.30 to 4.30. So very much focused around market trading hours. We would like to expand that as time goes by, but this is our kind of, for our audience, this is the core time that they want to be watching, but they're not going to tune in live to something that is just live for a little bit and then not live for an hour while we reset and do other things. So you kind of have to make that decision. If you're asking people to have this on, you know, in their foyer or in their office, you know, you have to give them something live that, that goes for that whole period. With that rollout you're mentioning about having other businesses put it into the screens, does that mean that you think that primary audience is going to be B2B or do is that still targeting towards business professionals but and i know that the the other core professionals are going to be of mm -hmm. financial services are going to be consuming this but who is the, the actual target do you think in terms of helping with distributing this live stream okay so we have we have sort of six defined target audiences and when i talk about that that sort of live professional audience that you're talking about yes we would expect to be back on in stockbroking firms etc cetera, etc cetera. And the product that we're building allows for that. We, we will also have an iOS app and a web app. So that is more for an individual. So whether that are, that those are people who, you know, still work in those firms, but want to watch outside of the office or professional or high net worth investors, sophisticated investors, uh, we're going to be doing a lot of content for advisors. The experience within our app will be very rich and there will be content recommendations there will be a whole lot of functionality within that. So basically anybody who is, I guess, invested in markets and not just listed equity markets will be doing a lot of content around private capital and startup. So, you know, our ethos is really we're building a platform where we are connecting investors to investment opportunities. And those opportunities, you know, could be everything from a, you know, a very blue chip, straightforward equity investment through to, you know, as I said, private capital startups, people doing capital raisings. So people will, I guess, at different times of day and different use cases, use our products differently. But we're not sort of going down that path of doing a lot of consumer finance type content, educational, et cetera. There, there's a, a level of assumed knowledge. So it's more of the advanced high end. And, and you mentioned about the six target audiences. Is that going to help you to fully cover all your bases? Do you think taking a one target audience approach or segment, is, do you think that's going to is it, do you think there's limitations to that or what are your thoughts? Um, I think having, I think just the way we've segmented our audiences and a lot of that really is for internal purposes, but it just makes it very clear for us of how we're going to reach these key people and what our sort of marketing strategies are and the sorts of content that we need to make, you know, to get those people to actually want to download our app 
or, you know, to flick this on at home or whatever it might be. So yeah, really it's, it's not something that we're, we publish and we say, you know, here are our audiences. It's more, you know, for us and our clients to know these are, these are the people and this is how we're going to reach them. Sure. Okay. Let's take a step back, Kylie. You know, when you find, when you think about business finance and news, uh, generally speaking, um, you know, there, there, there are other skies, but this was a blue in the Southeast Asia Pacific um, region. You, you think about the Bloomberg's or the MSNBC's or CNBC's. Why hasn't there been a business finance channel today in Australia, given it's, it's more, somewhat more established than you know, that kind of market? Why hasn't there been one today besides Sky or more competition around that? Oh, look, to be honest, I think there was, you know, until, until your money closed, there was always really plenty of opportunity. So, you know, you have CNBC and Bloomberg, which are very high quality, great services. However, they do service the entire Asia Pacific region. So there's not, you know, a whole heap of Australian content. And I think, you know, your money had had plenty and had very, you know, in in depth Sky News business, in depth Australian market coverage. And it was really only, you know, when that closed that they're, they're this gap kind of existed and then you do have you know nine and, and news corp news corp has the oz and obviously nine has the financial review so outside of the the live streaming tv stuff you know there is there's a lot um on offer and there are a lot of smaller publishers doing some really great stuff in this space i think it's just that very clear gap is that live rolling australia focused um tv which you know we haven't had now for for nine months so really what we're doing is just trying to bring that back because we know the market is there it's just that you know to be honest it's not a huge market it's probably you know our research says it's probably no more than 800,000 Australians who would really seek out this kind of higher end business and finance content. So in the grand scheme of things, it's, it's not a, a mass reach proposition. Um, that's 800,000 people in total, some of whom may only, you know, want to read the fin on a weekend or, you know, they may come in and out a couple of times a week, maybe. So, you know, a core audience of people who are wanting to watch it all the time is, is smaller than that. So for a mass media kind of group spending a, a huge amount of money on a, a tv style product you know it is it is quite difficult to make it commercially viable um, so that's why we've just sort of come up with a different model and we've been very clear from day one that you know while this audience is you know generally wealthy and and influential it, it is small and so we're, we're just developing a i guess a business model that suits that how well, how do you see the market landscaping changing? I know there's the likes of Facebook Watch, and um, you said there's niche publishers doing similar things. Uh, sorry, small. They're doing their own unique things. What do you see the landscape changing to be, and and what what do you think niche publishers versus live stream publishers, live stream networks like Ausbiz will be looking to help? cover the finance space in how how do you think they'll be able to cover this finance space in uh, given the current landscape this just from a consumer perspective um and i think that if five years ago we had have said okay we're going to do a niche channel whether it be finance or sport or whatever you probably would have struggled a little bit more not because the technology necessarily wasn't there but just because i think the way consumers were using this kind of media hadn't kind of got to where it is now i look at for example now you know my parents who are well into their 70s and they stream 
you know, nearly everything that they're watching now. So they stream all their Foxtel, you know, they have KO. It's just become ubiquitous and everyone is really very comfortable, you know, whether it's, you know, casting from your phone to a TV at home or using various streaming services. It's just, it's just the norm now. So I think once you get to that stage where there's no real block between consumers looking at your product and thinking, oh, that seems a bit hard. Once that's been taken away and you've got consumers who are like, yep, business and finance is my thing. Here is a channel, you know, Ausbiz is, is free on sign in. So there isn't sort of that paywall block either. So it becomes quite um, an easy uh, decision for them to make. And, you know, you know, you look at the success, for example, of something like KO. I don't know if, five, definitely not 10, if five years ago, a sports streaming service would have picked up that as quickly as it has just because of the level of acceptance there is now of streaming. And I think, you know, you're seeing this in, if you look for streaming services on basically, you know, any genre um, that you like, there's probably one out there for you um, and very, you know, easily accessible. So people's interests and and hobbies there's generally now um whether it's live all the time or not there's generally now something to serve them which i think is great because you know gone are the days where you know i grew when i grew up we only had two tv channels um Mm -hmm. (laughs) in canberra so gone are those days Um, and you know there's there's no wastage you don't have to sit around watching things that you don't really like Um, you can really seek out kind of content that's targeted to you how do you think the, the platforms like Facebook, Facebook Watch, and publishers they come into the ecos, uh, ecosystem? Are they? Do you think they're more partners? Uh, do you think they can help you build more live stream content? What are your thoughts around the ecosystem and industry collaboration? Generally, I see though I see the sort of those relationships, and they they can be a little bit testy at times. But those relationships between sort of established publishers and broadcasters and the social platforms. So if you look at, for example, Seven Newses, their their Facebook watch, the product that they're doing of a night now is incredibly popular and doing really well. But the thing is, right, that wouldn't exist unless Seven News itself existed. It's not like it's just a whole new, you know, brand. It's, It's doing so well because it comes with that very established brand. You know, for us, we will definitely have various relationships with the social channels. So our our key one at the moment is is Twitter. That's what we'll launch with. So we'll be live streaming the market open and also our startup daily show on Twitter. Obviously, we're called um, Ausbiz because of the Ausbiz hashtag. So again, it's kind of you know where is where is our audience through the day and primarily they're on Twitter, they're talking about and they're watching what's happening in business and finance. So yeah, there's some, there's some great relationships there that I think help you with reach and distribution, but I don't think, you know, necessarily we would be so, or, or a, a bigger, more established broadcaster would be, you know, successful j- just based on, on those platforms. And the monetization is obviously another huge can of worms let's not open that right now <laughs> no, no problem how about in terms of um, using real-time i know you haven't uh, it doesn't launch here but based on your experience as well how have you been able to u- create that infrastructure to use the real-time data for audience development and partnerships what are the considerations potentially to to look at to help with better programming yeah so that this is actually kind of core to Ausbiz. Again, it's part of the, 
you know, the great thing about being able to start something from scratch. So we will have an audience intelligence platform from launch, which will capture all of the data from, it, it's very, I mean, it's not that dissimilar to Netflix, to be honest. If you think about the way people um, use our app and what uh, kind of content they search for, they'll also be able to follow various, you know, companies or themes, all of that, you know, will obviously live within their sign in. So they will be able to, to set up their notifications so they can get recommended content, all of that kind of stuff that I think people now expect as fundamental when they're using a, a streaming service. What we then, I guess, do with that data is it will give us that real time feedback on what's working, what's not, if there are any particular sort of types of programming that people are, you know, what you call tuning into, you know, what we're doing, what, what we're doing wrong to be able to actually have that in, in real time. I don't think generally it, it's not like, you know, our producers would sit there through the day and watch the number of streams going up and down and think, oh, you know, streams went down when this guest was on. We, we won't do that anymore. It, it's, I don't think you make decisions that are quite that granular, but it does allow you to, to very, very clearly start to see trends and, and make some changes and kind of serve your audience in that way. Absolutely. Um, it's also, I guess, just to move on from that, it's, it's also really interesting. Obviously, we comply with all privacy and all that sort of stuff, but if you think about us being able to then use the data we're getting from what people are watching and what their preferences are as a as a washed data set within the app and being able to share that with with our clients helping you know helping us to be able to work with them to say you know I know you want to create this kind of content but no one wants to watch it so let's not waste everyone's time and money people are very very interested in this particular topic so you know let's work on doing more content in that space well, that's that's a key thing that you mentioned because Chrome, uh, sorry, Google Chrome recently announced that in two years' time they're gonna no longer have third-party data, accepting third-party cookie data for their browsers. So it is becoming increasingly important first-party yeah. data. And um, do you think there is additional technology that's needed to help uh, better present that data to potential partners or advertisers? Or how do you think what do we need to do in order to help better? present that information to to potential prospects uh, advertisers i mean sorry i think that's two pronged i think that there's an awful lot of technology out there that does enable you to pull in all of the data you have from you know what your users are doing what they're watching pull that in align it with what you're doing across external channels you know what how is your content performing say on facebook pulling all that together and actually doing a really great report for people I think the problem with that is that's all very well and good, but if it doesn't align 100% with the the data sets that are required by media agencies, that's when it just becomes really difficult because, you know, your data can be telling one story. And even if you're 100% convinced that, you know, it's correct and it's robust, you know, if it's not what Nielsen or Oztam or, or anybody else that the ratings agencies and that the media agencies use, then you know, they have to choose which one to go to and they really only trade off those, you know, accepted data sets. So I guess for us, you know, a lot of the people, the kind of clients that we work with uh, sit outside that kind of traditional media agency landscape. They, they don't, you know, they don't normally do TV. Um, a lot of them don't do sort of traditional advertising anyway. So for us to be able to show them, you know, how, 
uh, how our content is performing and where either where their brand is sitting around that content or if they're producing content and using it as, as I guess a form of advertising within our ad breaks we can certainly you know show them in in great depth what that means and the kind of people that they're hitting and again you know we're, we're kind of able to do that because we are small and we have this kind of very niche audience I think once you start to get big and you've got lots and lots of different demos to look at it does become a bit trickier how you're mentioning now about learning from mistakes and because you're smaller is there any things you expect that will happen that you can then bounce back more quickly from or what do you think are some of the common teething issues that you would come with when you launch uh, look the hardest thing will undoubtedly be technology because the you know six months from now I think we'll probably look back and think you know this is all really easy why why was it such a hassle but as I said before, because we are building this from scratch, we're using the very latest kind of newsroom platforms and systems, which will be great. But at the moment, you know, none of us have ever worked with them. So literally every person in the company is going to need to learn, you know, five or six new platforms and how all of those bits and pieces speak to one another. And it's only when we get that right that the channel will kind of sing. So yeah, it'll be once everything's in and plugged in, we'll have a couple of sort of weeks to rehearse and get all those bugs out. But undoubtedly, you know, it won't be 100% perfect from day one. So, you know, we'll have to keep things pretty basic while all of that gets worked through. And there's always, you know, technology is fantastic, but it's never 100% sort of fail-proof. So, but we're, we're all, um, you know, we've all been doing this for a long time. So we're pretty good at just rolling with it figuring out how to make it work that that is the nature of uh, tv and media i guess you, you have to roll with it sometimes when it doesn't work out so i, I just want to pivot a bit of our conversation towards uh, some of the startup for uh, learnings that you've experienced just with launching this because i believe this is your first startup so with that what have you found the shift being being from you know launching other the channels within established more established companies versus yourself what have you found the uh, learnings key things that you've learned in the past year or so i guess there's a lot of kind of back office type stuff that even when you're launching a new business within a bigger business there's you know there's a lot of inputs that you need to be across a lot of decisions you have to make when you're starting something absolutely from scratch and it's just, you know, you and a handful of other people, there's just a whole lot of other things that you need to, um, to do everything from, you know, payroll to all of the legal stuff, which in a previous life would always have been taken care of by other people. So it's just a whole other layer of kind of admin um, that you need to make sure that you're getting right. You know, I think probably the biggest eye-opener for me has been the, um, the process of raising capital. It's the getting the, the story correct before you take it out to investors. And really, you can't do that because the story sort of evolves. It's only when you've been out in market for a while and you start to realise perhaps that what you think is the most interesting thing about this business is actually not what you know, the majority of other people think is the most interesting thing. And so you realize that you've probably been selling it all wrong from the start. So we've, we've had a couple of, you know, fairly big revisions. I mean, the business plan is still pretty much exactly the same as it was when we started the process, just how we talk about it and what we kind of surface in those discussions, you know, 
we've kind of flipped that about almost completely as we've realised that, you know, investors want something very different to what, what we thought they did. I mean, that's, that is the interesting, that's the reason why I asked as well, because it is not live and typically um, investors would want to see invest in the period where you're ramping up for growth and, and stuff like that. So has it helped getting uh, David Gosh's backing to help with investors? Or I mean, you said that you worked on the story as well. What have you found with investors looking for versus what you were expecting to present the story? I guess if I, if I can ask that. Yeah, I think it's more just around the tech piece. So um, definitely having Koshi on board um, is obviously a huge help. He and I have worked together for 20 years. So um, we already have a very solid kind of business relationship and, and know each other very well. I think probably though both of us went into this, you know, we've both been in media for nearly our entire lives. And so our, our level of assumed or, or I guess maybe the knowledge that we didn't realise that other people didn't have about the media. So we would go in and kind of tell a story and explain what Ausbiz is. And it's only sort of started to come to light more recently that perhaps a lot of that stuff, people didn't really understand what we were talking about. Um, And we just assumed they did. And then it's sort of like, oh, now it makes sense as to why they didn't really understand the model because we just weren't explaining all that kind of media stuff that sits on top of it. So when we sort of stripped a lot of that away and just explained to them, you know, at its core, at at its core, this business is is really a fintech. Um, It probably won't look like that from day one but that's what we're building and the the content that that live stream and that really high quality content that will help us get an audience that's really just one part of the whole story whereas we were just really at the start just talking about the content Um, so it just looked like another media business um, and people couldn't kind of really see what the growth potential was so when we sort of flipped it around and sort of explained, you know, what, what we're building this to look like in five years' time, as opposed to what this is going to look like when it launches this year, people get it far quicker and, and are far more excited about it, I think. Do you find that there's any bias or any, when you're speaking from a tech play? Find that uh, I think there's probably a bias away from investing in pure media. Um, and, you know, that's understandable with all the stories and everything that... Um, we've seen it's been a pretty tough old business to be involved with for the last 10 years. Um, I do think, though, we've kind of turn, turned a corner and that the landscape's kind of starting to settle again. And, you know, yeah, the glory days of, you know, not having to do much to earn squillions of dollars are probably gone. But I think, you know, all media companies have kind of now starting to find their space in in where we are and working a lot harder to um, to produce you know, better, more targeted content and just better experiences across all of their digital platforms. Absolutely. Um, the niche, niche is key. That's, that's what, what it is moving forward. And I strongly believe in that as well. In terms of bringing on employees and staff, how, how are you able to help them come with this journey with you? Some of them, most of them, well, probably about half of them I've already knew some of them very very well so my first employee was there with me on day one when we launched sky news business Mm -hmm. um and then there's just been some other new people that we've met along the way i guess it depends where they are in their career people who are sort of relatively early in i think are quite excited about the idea of you know 
continuing their journalism or media career, but actually doing it within a startup because they, you know, you really do get the opportunity to make a, a pretty big difference when you're in a business of this size. Uh, and then we've, you know, we've got some other people who will be coming on board shortly who you know, have had very long and distinguished careers within this space um, who, again, just think, yeah, it's a bit of a risk, but, you know, having a hand in something that's brand new um, and coming on this, I hate the word journey, but coming on the journey with us, yeah. they find it really exciting. And, you know, there's always, there's always downside risk in doing something brand new, but there's, you know, obviously a lot more upside risk than just there would be in, you know, a similar role in a company that's got, you know, tens of thousands of people. Definitely. And how do you navigate the ship to make sure that like, there's always going to be unexpected things that come up and, you know, sometimes even your first couple employees will take on more hats than they should just to help mm -hmm. with, with getting things. How do you help manage their workload and, and just being in terms of a leadership point of view and just with the um, vision changing, sometimes tweaking the stories, tweaking, mm -hmm. how do you make sure that they are still with you even though those changes are happening? I'm, I'm, I've always been very hands-on. Um, so I think leading by example, um, I think if, if people are being asked to work really hard and to try new things, if they see you doing it as well and sometimes trying and failing, then they're far more likely to come with you. If they see you asking them to do all of that, but then, you know, you wandering out the door at 10 to 5, they're probably not going to be as likely to, um, to fall over themselves to, to follow you. I also, you know, I'm just a very pragmatic person. So very comfortable when things sometimes don't go right. You know, you've just got to pick yourself up and get on with it. Nobody died. Just find another way to make it work without having a big drama about it. No, definitely. Um, sometimes, yeah, it's, 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 it's very it's sensitive time. So it's, it's key to make sure that you're letting by example and your hands on. So no, that's awesome. Thank you so much for that. Uh, with, with that in mind, I guess, uh, I know not talking, talking too far ahead is not, doesn't make sense. And um, I guess the key focus now is the launch, but um, when do you guys expect to launch at the moment? And um, what do you, what are some of the initial key indica indicators of success from launching you'd like to see with Ausbiz? Okay, so there's two things. So our first kind of key indicator of success thus far has been the number and scale of kind of commercial partnerships that we've signed on and that we will sign on before we're even live. So there's definitely, we've, we've exceeded those targets, I would say, and mm. there's definitely a very strong level of interest and support for this. So that's been great to see. From launch, uh, from when we're live, look, I, I, you know, I keep referring to it. I will consider ourselves successful when I start walking back into dealing rooms and trading floors and receptions in the Melbourne and Sydney, for example, CBDs and, and our channel is back on. Obviously, we've got sort of internal audience targets and stream targets, et cetera, that we'll be working towards hitting, but really you know, it, it, it's almost intangible, but our success for us will mean just becoming a part of that fabric of the financial services community again. And I can't sort of give you numbers on what that looks like, but, but we'll know it when we see it. Awesome. Any final advice or words that you'd like to share with our audience, Kylie? Oh, 
don't know if I'm qualified to be giving advice. Look what, in terms of launching a startup, it's, it's as hard as I expected it would be. It's probably not for the faint hearted, but I just think you've really got to want it and you've really got to be quite passionate about, you know, not just the fact that you want to launch a startup, but you've got to be really passionate about what that startup is and what it does and what you want sort of the culture of that business to be as well. Because I think if you just went into doing this just for the, you know, the idea of making money or having fun or whatever, um, you'd probably give up before you got too far. What about the money side? Like, I mean, it has to work. So how do you balance that out with the passion? You, you don't want to be too much in the air, but then at the same time, you want to make sure that you're grounded with some of those things. How do you make sure that you, you try to balance the two together? You've got to eat. And I, I would not have felt comfortable um, getting to this point and employing people and have people, you know, leaving very good jobs to come and work here if, you know, I wasn't, very, very confident um, that we would have the money to support that. You know, obviously we're not throwing around huge salary packages at this at this stage in our life cycle, but that's, you know, as I alluded to, there's, there's always probably more of an upside in a startup than there would be in a, a similar, more traditional business. But yeah, there's, there is always that risk as well. With that, Kylie, thank you for joining us. I really appreciate it. You're very welcome. Awesome. Thank you for joining us on this episode of the State of Digital Publishing Podcast. Listen to past and upcoming episodes across all major podcast networks. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and join our community groups. Finally, visit stateofdigitalpublishing.com for premium information, resources, and become a member today. Until next time.